due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, only dead men keep their secrets. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by author Henry Hemming, and we discuss his book, Our Man in New York, that takes a look at the secretive work of the BSC, British Security Coordination, during World War II, and its mysterious spymaster, William Stevenson. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us in a few ways. First of all, please share this podcast with your friends, family, and cohorts. Please do write a review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews help people find the podcast. I now have a new Patreon Friends of the Podcast tier, and that's the only tier now. And if you select to do that, you'll have my undying gratitude. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. And once in a while, I will will do my best to put a little extra in there to make it worthwhile for you. Maybe some Zoom drinks or a Q&A, maybe a behind-the-scenes look at the making of this podcast. If you do enjoy this podcast, you may like my film, The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is available on Amazon and iTunes. It's an 18-minute contemporary spy drama written and directed by myself. So if you have a spare 18, 20 minutes and you've uh, exhausted your Netflix and Amazon Prime, check it out. And please do write a review after you've seen it. And without further ado, let's get going. And this episode was edited by Jake Brady at Podcast Wax. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Henry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to be on. It's great to have you on. For the benefit of listeners unfamiliar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm a historian and I write mostly about spies. Uh, The last three books I've done have been about uh, intelligence, mostly during the Second World War. I've done one called Our Man in New York, which um, which came out several months ago, all about an MI6 influence campaign in the States, which um, which we'll be talking about. I've also done a, a biography of Maxwell Knight, who was uh, at MI5. And then before that, I did a book about um, a man who was a, a Soviet agent during the Second World War, a guy called Jeffrey Pike. So... Uh, it's not a sort of, I don't want to call it a trilogy of books. That implies they're all sort of following sequentially one from the other. But they're all they're sort of in the same, roughly the same field of uh, World War II spies. Yeah, no, it's a good place to be. It's some interesting stories in that bit of history. I think it's, uh, it's a fantastic area. Um, well, as you mentioned before, we've got this fantastic book called Our Man in New York. And in the US, I believe it's called Agents of Influence. And this book takes a look at this sort of fascinating character from World War II intelligence history, William Stevenson. And he ran this MI6 campaign to organize American public opinion in regards to building support for, for fighting Nazi Germany. So before we go into kind of the specifics of of Stevenson and his operation in World War II. Can you just tell us a bit about who he was and what drew your interest into him? Yeah, he was a Canadian businessman. He was, uh, I guess, what we would call a, a venture capitalist. And he was, um, and, and he'd done well. He'd come from very humble uh, beginnings. He grew up as a working class boy in an impoverished uh, estate in, in a part of, uh, of central Canada. He was, um, he was orphaned by the age of four. His father had died and his mother and, um, and siblings left him. He had a tough, tough upbringing. But he then, um, he, he moved to London and, um, and he made it as a businessman. And he was making pots of money. But at the same time, he had this, this yearning, I think, to, uh, to get into intelligence. He was always intrigued by, by MI6 and World of Spies. And uh, for reasons we'll get into, he, he eventually did. But at the same time, my, my way into this is, um, is on one side of my family, my Canadian grandparents, um, they knew him. They knew him during the 1930s. And more than that, he, um, on one particular day in the 1930s, my granny had gone to go and see him in his house outside London and had taken her three-year-old son, my dad. And, uh, and at one point, uh, he turned to, to my granny and said, where is your, your son? And she had no idea. 
So he um, he ran over to this other part of the garden where there was he knew this, this enormous pond where my dad was was drowning. So um, Stevenson dived in, fished him out, saved his life, and um, and from an early age, I remember hearing just this this really sort of short story about this guy called Bill who saved Dad's life ages ago. So he's always kind of been there growing up for me. And I suppose it's only in the last few years that I've begun to really get to know him and uh, find out about exactly what he did. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic story. Kind of, because like, um, you know, it's a bit like, you know, you you wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for William Stevenson saving your father. It's just amazing, you know. (laughs) It's fantastic. And it does, I mean, it sort of changes the way you write about someone when you have that kind of connection. I mean, I I really hope I'm not, unduly influenced it's definitely not a, a hagiography i think there are lots of things he did wrong i think there are mistakes he made um but it does i think it just sort of brings the person closer knowing you've got that that thread of a connection fantastic so how did you go about researching this book because there's a lot of myth regarding william stevenson and the british security coordination i mean i i my first ever hearing of him was through the infamous book a man named intrepid and uh, and obviously that's largely a work of fiction but uh, yeah. it's um i know it was allegedly it's been reclassified by its american publisher as a work of fiction and um i also had this story about uh, someone who spoke to the author of that book and, uh, and asked the author of that book, um, why did he make so much of it up? And he apparently said, well, if I'd known how well it was going to do, I simply wouldn't have done. And uh, in other words, he thought it was going to sell a few hundred copies. And instead, it sold more than two million. And, uh, and, and for anyone who lots of people don't know about this book, it is a story about Bill Stevenson. And I stress story, which makes out that he was this, this superhero character someone who essentially ran Western intelligence during the Second World War, who played a part in um, helping um, make the atom bomb, um, do the Enigma decrypts, uh, assassinate Heydrich. He was running intelligence in America and Britain. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's a great read in the sense that you think this person's real. This is, this is great. But um, a lot of it is untrue. Have you seen the film with David Niven as Intrepid? I've seen bits of it. Yeah, because I got this. Uh, I bought this DVD years ago. It's some sort of German copy of it. I think I, I got the feeling it was like a a chopped down version of a mini series. But yeah, he's he's sort of training people to join uh, in the SOE and all sorts of things. <laughs> I mean, and the sad thing is, again and again, there are you know there are elements of truth. In, uh, in, in what the guy who wrote this book uh, is, is talking about. SOE was a big part of the, the operation that Stevenson was running in New York. And, um, and he did help to set up a training camp in Canada, which, um, which took its first recruits just after Pearl Harbor. So you can understand kind of where he's coming from. But again and again, he takes the historical reality and just runs with it and turns it into something colorful yeah yeah well let's go a little bit into what he got up to so can you just tell us a bit about how william stevenson sort of became the head of mi6 in new york and what his mission was he was um he was sent over to america to uh, by the head of mi6 a guy called Steve. and uh, and his mission was simply to uh, to meet the head of the fbi j edgar hoover and open up a channel of communication between the fbi and mi6 with used to thinking of the special relationship between America and Britain. But at the time, it was, it was anything but special. And uh, there was simply no communication then between the FBI and MI6. But Stevenson, um, he, he did this. He, he managed to, to get Hoover to agree. And, uh, and the head of MI6 was so impressed by the way in which Stevenson had done this um, that he said, actually, I'd like you to, um, to go back to America and take over the entire... MI6 operation in the United States. And in the book, I sort of describe that as a bit like an understudy coming into a, a theatrical production. And on the strength of one brief cameo, suddenly being given the lead part and then being told that the production's moving to a much bigger venue because just as he's uh, sent over to the United States, um, it becomes clear that actually American support is critical to Britain's ability to wage war against Nazi Germany. So he goes over in the summer of 1940, sets off just days after Dunkirk. And, uh, and it, it, it takes a while to dawn on, on, on number 10, on, on the British government at that time. 
the extent to which American public opinion will play a part in deciding whether or not official American support continues and whether just Britain will keep getting arms and supplies to, uh, to make it possible to keep fighting. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, prior to America entering the war against Nazi Germany, there was a huge anti-war movement sort of growing in the US. Um, can you just talk to us a bit about that anti-war movement, its origins, who the key players were? Yeah, sure. The, um, I mean, the best way into it is this uh, enormous organization called America First, which, um, which, of course, brings us to the modern day with Donald Trump. I mean, that, that really was his, his campaign slogan. And I say that it really was because... Um, it's, it's amazing in the sense that America First, by the end, was uh, famous for being anti-Semitic, deeply anti-immigrant, almost fascist in its outlook on certain issues. It was a, yeah, a staunchly right-wing organization by the end. I mean, at the beginning, when it first formed, it was less so. At the beginning, it was, it was squarely dedicated to this, this one object, which was keeping America out of the Second World War. And... The arguments that they made at the time were perfectly valid. Um, they kept being told, the, the American people were being told that, um, that America was under threat from imminent Nazi invasion, and it wasn't. Um, Hitler wasn't able to invade Britain. There's no way he could actually launch an attack on the United States and get an army across the Atlantic. Um, so it wasn't, there wasn't a sort of practical threat at that point. And, uh, and America First was, was trying to rally this sentiment across America, which, which existed among many people, um, that this just wasn't their fight. This was a European problem that should be left to them. And I guess bound up in that, you've got something which for non-Americans can be quite hard to understand, that for many people in America, um, either they've made the journey from Europe or they, their parents or their grandparents have done that. And that journey, there's, there's an element of that, which, which is that you know, I'm coming to the new world. I'm going to leave behind the old world and all of its problems, including infighting and, uh, and world wars. And, uh, and so part of being American, you could almost argue, was saying, actually, that's their problem. Let's concentrate on our own issues, of which you know, we, have, we have plenty. So um, the America First organization started out with, with reasonable demands and perfectly sensible outlook. Um, but by the end of it, it became something else. One key figure who sort of stood out was Charles Lindbergh. Can you tell us a little bit about yeah, him? He was an exceptionally famous man at the start of this story. I mean, he, he was, I, I sort of trying to think of the best example. You think of sort of David Beckham mixed with Brad Pitt. I mean, he was an uber celebrity at that time, someone who could do no wrong. He was seen as a sort of fundamentally American, patriotic. He was good looking, he was successful. His biggest claim to fame was having flown single-handedly across the Atlantic solo and, uh, and been the first person to do that. This was back in 1927. And since then, he, as I said, become a sort of poster boy for American endeavor. And he wasn't someone who stepped into politics until 1939, when um, he began to say America should, should stay out of this war. And, uh, and he soon attached himself to the America First movement, and he, he gave speeches all over the country. And the more he did this, the, I suppose, the more extreme his speeches became. And, um, and gradually, as he gives more and more of these speeches, there's an undercurrent of anti-immigrant and also anti-Semitism, which becomes quite clear. And then it all comes to a, to a head on the 11th of September, 1941. Where he and he's been thinking about this for a long time, but essentially he gives a speech in which he's no longer sort of skirting around the issue. He says quite clearly, the reason people are trying to bring us into the war is that there is a conspiracy. He says there's a Jewish conspiracy, and um, he also says that Jewish Americans are not proper Americans. He um, refers to them as them, which I mean, creepily made me think of um, one of Donald Trump's latest speeches. And he refers to um, Asian Americans as, as them. And, uh, and it's exactly the same thing. It's, uh, and, and, but the reaction to Limbo's speech was really interesting. A lot of people until then had been prepared to tolerate these, these dog whistles. Um, but the moment Lindbergh comes out with it, he is condemned. And um, really, sort of a lot of the country turns against him. And uh, yeah, he becomes ostracized. 
But at the same time, America First becomes this rather different organization that begins to attract people who are openly anti-Semitic or openly anti-immigrant and uh, becomes more of an extremist outfit. Yeah, it grew into something really nasty. <laughs> so so it's probably a silly question, but it's, I think it's good to um, remind people, you know, what was at stake if, America, if the American First Movement kept America out of the war with Nazi Germany? Very simply, Britain's ability to, to keep fighting. Uh, by mid-1941, Britain was not in any way winning. It was able to survive, but only for a limited period. It was losing in the Battle of the Atlantic. And uh, if it continued to do so, and if there was no sudden input of American support, you'd be unable to defeat Nazi Germany. I guess there's a, it's a basic distinction between um, avoiding defeat and actually achieving victory. And the consensus amongst most political and some military strategists by by the summer of 1941, is that, yes, Britain might be able to hold out for a year, a couple more years, but the possibility of actually getting to Berlin and defeating Hitler was, um, was completely unrealistic without American support. And Churchill, was um, he, he got that early on. I mean, very, very early on in his, his premiership, he realized that American support was absolutely key. And, um, and even the sort of the classic Churchill speeches that we all know and, and have heard so many times in, in, the 19, in 1940. Um, even in these, he's beginning to introduce very subtle appeals to America, to American public sentiment, talking about the new world coming to the rescue of the old. He, he gets it. He knows how important this is. And as I say, without American support, Britain will not be able to defeat Nazi Germany. William Stevenson was sent to the US and he had to build a series of what I call kind of complex relationships with key figures in the US government. You've mentioned a bit about J. Edgar Hoover. There's also uh, Bill Donovan who went on to form the OSS and then it became the CIA um, and President Roosevelt. Can you just tell us a little bit about some of those relationships he had to build and the kind of the fine line he had to tread with them? Yeah, no, they're, they're fascinating. They, um, I mean, every author is different, but when I start thinking about writing a book, I have a sort of checklist in my head of, of things that I need to be present if I'm going to get involved in this story and, and, and write it. And one of them is not just characters that you can really live with and, and that you want to kind of know about and, and find out more about, but it's also relationships. It's, you've got to have good, interesting, um, sometimes ambiguous relationships between your key characters. And the moment I found out about this relationship between Bill Stevenson and Bill Donovan, the guy who is the, the MI6 head of station for the US, and Bill Donovan, who goes on to run this precursor of the CIA. That relationship is, is in some ways the, the spine of, of the book of Our Man in New York. It's fascinating. They're two people who they get on, they like each other, they come from a similar background. They both grew up in, in tough neighborhoods, close to the American-Canadian border, Stevenson on the Canadian side, Donovan on the American side. They both became self-made millionaires during the 20s and, and 30s, but they both wanted something else. And so Donovan, throughout the 30s, is constantly trying to get into politics, but not really succeeding. And Stevenson, meanwhile, over in London, is trying to get into intelligence, but not really succeeding. And, and they, they meet in New York, and Stevenson immediately sees him as, uh, as a way of achieving something he wants. And the thing he wants is there to be an American intelligence agency that will be completely on side with the British. And he wants Donovan to run it. And that, I mean, on the face of it, that is, it's extraordinary. He's only just arrived in America. And he thinks, not only do I want to invent this new American intelligence agency, but I know exactly who I want to be in charge of it. And he starts whining and dining Bill Donovan. So they become friends, they're getting on, but the whole time, Stevenson has an agenda. But at the same time, Donovan is, is not thick. He knows, he, he's, he's got a sense of what's going on. And he knows that Stevenson might be able to help him, he might be able to, to get into a place which otherwise he can't get to. And for a long time, Donovan is he's resistant. He says, you know, I'm not, I'm not a spy. I can't run an intelligence agency. And Stevenson slowly talks him around. He he arranges for Donovan to go to London to meet lots of people who can teach him about how to run an intelligence agency. And Donovan, 
gradually is is won over. And at the same time, Donovan is is being flattered. He's being bestowed with secrets. He's being made to feel important. And that, of course, you know, part of the key of winning anyone over is is making them feel important. At a time when he was at a low ebb in his life, he was um, he kept being passed over politically. His his daughter had died several months earlier. He was um, he wanted something to kind of take him away from that, and uh, and so this relationship leads ultimately to the creation of uh, a new American intelligence agency, the OSS. It becomes, and then later it becomes the CIA. And uh, as I say, the root of it is just this this friendship between two guys who who got yeah, on. Yeah, no, it's amazing. What was Stevens's relationship with President Roosevelt? It's, I mean, if you read, if you read A Man Called Intrepid, they were best buddies and would uh, <laughs> see each other most days. Um, the truth is, I don't think they ever met. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty confident about that. There's no evidence, there's certainly no written evidence that they ever met. Um, but Donovan was the, was the go-between. So Donovan was very close to Roosevelt and Stevenson was very close to Donovan. And, um, and when Stevenson wanted to get something, to Roosevelt, it went via Donovan. And uh, I guess that's, yeah, the best way of describing that relationship. Now, as Britain wanted America to join the war against Germany, Germany wanted to do everything it could to keep America out of the war. Can you talk to us about some of the um, the Nazi efforts to persuade the Americans, uh, sorry, American public opinion against going to war with Germany? Yeah, sure. So you're right. There was, um, there was an extensive German influence campaign that was running at the same time. In fact, I mean, by the time Stevenson arrives, the German influence campaign is, is flourishing, is doing exceptionally well. It's got the support of various uh, US politicians. Uh, there's a, a rather elaborate scheme they had whereby uh, US congressmen would stand up in Congress. These are guys who are working with the German influence campaign. They would um, talk about an article that was very pro-German, pro-Hitler, um, and asked for it to be added to something called the uh, Congressional Record. And the moment that had happened, they would then be allowed to, uh, to send it out at no expense to themselves to as many people as they liked using something called the uh, Congressional Frank. And as I say, it's, it's a complicated scheme. Basically, this was the German government using willing American politicians to help them spread pro-German propaganda around America and getting it specifically to people who they knew would be open and, and amenable to this. And um, this is all being done at American taxpayers' expense. Um, they also use some of the, the American congressmen who are on side to help uh, campaign for particular planks in the, uh, the foreign policy uh, statement that was made at the Republican National Congress, sorry, convention in 1940. So they were, um, yeah, they were heavily involved in trying to influence American politics at that time. And one of the things that Stevenson did was to squarely take them on, try and try and remove some of the uh, the key German players, and uh, either try to have them talked about in the press, so they then were, were forced to kind of curtail their activities, or in some cases be deported, or indeed just to um, to expose something like the congressional franking scheme, again in the hope of. Uh, having it put to an end. Yeah, because it, it, one of the things that came out was how there was this desperation to prove a link between Nazi Germany um, and the America First movement. And I think the franking scheme is kind of the Achilles heel, wasn't it, that eventually sort of came home to roost? Yeah, no, exactly right. And uh, and there were a lot of people, and the FBI was also being told by Roosevelt, find a link, find a link between America First and Berlin. And that would be a way of discrediting this isolationist um, anti-war movement. And, um, and finally, they did. They did. It was, uh, it was a small link, but it was enough. It was enough to uh, start to discredit them. And at almost exactly the same time, Lindbergh gives a speech where he comes out of saying, the Jews are behind the push to, uh, to come into the war. And what's interesting about that is that Lindbergh's decision to make that, even that was influenced by Berlin. We know that um, the German embassy was was talking to people who are friends with Lindbergh. They're encouraging those people to suggest to Lindbergh that he uh, talk about Jewish Americans in a derogatory way. So Lindbergh was he was being used. I don't think he was a conscious agent, as some people have alleged. There's no evidence that he was actually aware of what was going on. I mean, at the same time, 
would he have minded if he knew that his friends were in touch with the German embassy? I don't think he would have been particularly upset. He was certainly pro-German. He was certainly um, an admirer of Hitler. And he, was, he, he liked what he knew about Nazism. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. He writes about it um, at length in his, um, in his diary. Can you talk to us about some of the steps Stevenson and his colleagues took to counter, counter the Nazis' efforts that were going on at the time? Yeah, I mean, maybe one good example is um, what they managed to achieve with uh, a German embassy official called Dr. Westrick. And, um, and this is a guy who was, uh, he was working behind the scenes trying to, to win over American businessmen to get them to be pro-German in their, in their outlook and in terms of uh, what they were willing to do. And he was conducting a series of meetings. There was nothing criminal that this guy was doing. But Stevenson had agents discover some of the contacts that he'd made and, and some of the, the activities he may have been up to. And rather than go to the FBI and say, look, this is what we found. There's no criminal activity, but you may want to know about this. Instead, what he did was organize a press campaign against Westrick. So he lined up all the sort of juiciest things that he'd found, all full of innuendo, because there wasn't anything really meaty there, and passed it on to a series of different media outlets at roughly the same time to try and create this media firestorm. And there's actually there's, there's real skill to doing this. So not only did this, this story suddenly appear about Dr. Westrick in a series of different sources, he also kept back some of the good stuff that he had so he could feed it into this, this firestorm in the days that followed. And, um, and then the more Westrick denied it, the more the story grew. And the ultimate effect of this, three weeks later, was that Westrick was forced to leave the country. He was, um, he was deported purely on account, not on account of anything criminal he had done, but just because of this media firestorm which had been produced by, by Stevenson. So that was, yes, one example of, of how to remove a key player in the uh, German influence campaign. Yeah. Can you give us some examples now of the, the um, BSC campaign that, that was run by Stevenson to influence American public opinion? My favourite favorite example is the, uh, to do with a, a speech Roosevelt gives on uh, the 27th of October, 1941. And, uh, and this is an amazing speech. He, uh, it's being broadcast live to the entire country. And in the speech, he says, I have in my possession a map and it's a map of South America, and it's been handed to me by American intelligence. And it shows Nazi plans to take over South America in its entirety. And he says, effectively, this is proof that Germany has plans and we need to, to go to war against Germany because they have plans to take over South America. And what's amazing is that this map did not come from Germany, did not come from the Nazis. It was produced by the future director of Light Entertainment at the BBC, a guy called um, Eric Mashwitz, who, uh, who was a composer, he was a lyricist, he's, he's a fascinating guy in his own right. He was part of Stevenson's campaign. He was based in a forgery factory that Stevenson had set up in Canada. He'd made this, this fake, this, this map, and, um, and passed it on to Stevenson. Stevenson passed it on to Bill Donovan, Bill Donovan passed it on to Roosevelt, and Roosevelt then used it in his speech. I mean, the interesting question here is, is did Roosevelt know? Did he know that this was a British fake? Um, or was he being duped? Was he, is he the victim in this, or is he actually part of the, uh, part of the conspiracy? And I mean, I'm tempted to leave that for the book, because that's quite yeah, a... Yeah, no, no, I do. <laughs> and uh, I mean... You could also argue that if you're looking for articles for impeachment, the idea of colluding with a foreign power, let's say he did know it was a British fake, colluding with a foreign power to mislead the American people in order to encourage Congress to declare war on Germany is, if there ever was one, an impeachable offence. Just, I mean, it's one of quite a few things Roosevelt may have done um, in order to, to bring the country closer to war. That was something which, which I found astonishing when researching our man in New York. I mean, just, just how far Roosevelt was willing to go. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what Ogilvy did for, for Stevenson at the Gallup poll? Yeah, sure. This is, um, so we know absolutely without doubt that Ogilvy was working for Stevenson during, I think it's about at least the first 12 months of uh, American not being in the war, but uh, yeah, 
basically most of 1941, Ogilvy was working for Stevenson while he was employed at the Gallup organization. We don't have anywhere on paper Ogilvy saying, this is what I did. Um, but what I have done is go through all of the Gallup questions and, and just look for the odd ones out. And, uh, and there are several instances where I would argue strongly that you can see the hand of Ogilvy. There's um, I mean, one occasion which really stands out. The Stevenson had launched this, uh, he, had, he had a campaign all set to go in the press aimed at, um, at, at showing up a link between Vichy France and the American isolationists, so people like Lindbergh. And they'd spent about three months preparing the ground. So they had a spy inside the Vichy embassy in Washington. They'd gathered huge amounts of material and they were just working out exactly which newspapers to, to give it to. And then just a few days before all of these stories broke, the Gallup poll for the first time in its history had a question about Vichy France, suggesting there was a link between Vichy France and the isolationists and saying to, to the American people, how would you feel about this? Which, um, which in a very deft way introduces the possibility of this. It, it prepares the ground for the press expose that's about to, to appear. It's the kind of thing that Ogilvy could have very easily slipped in. And that's, I think, one of the things that he could have done. What you also have, again and again, is that the wording of particular questions is made to be pro-war and pro-British. And again, I would argue, given that Ogilvy was involved in the, the formulation of these questions, I think it's, it's a very, very strong possibility that he, he helped to tweak those questions to make them pro-British. Now, you mentioned earlier, um, President Roosevelt was always concerned about the rise of Nazi Germany, and he directly wanted to, to counter the Nazis by sending US forces into Europe. But obviously, public opinion was not on his side with that. Um, and he followed this sort of strategy, as you put it, of wanting to lead by appearing to follow and arranging for others to change public opinion. So can you, can you talk to us about some of the steps that Roosevelt took behind the scenes to allow America to enter the war against Nazi Germany? Yeah, as I was saying in the book, He's, um, he had this extraordinary ability to, to what do you do? He wanted public opinion to present him with the thing that he wanted to do anyway. And there were a number of people around him, often um, there's, there's a group called the Century Group, which is perhaps the best way into it. And this is a group of only about 20 or 30 well-connected, often wealthy Americans who are all leading figures in, in industry, in the arts, in, in journalism and so on. And, uh, and they were all pro going to war. They saw themselves as the, the opposition to the isolationists. They were often also pro-British. And they, they were close to Roosevelt. They would often go to Roosevelt saying, what can we do? What can we do to try and change American public opinion? And he would give them indications as to what he wanted American public opinion to do. They would then go off and use all of their considerable power to try and achieve this shift in public opinion using speeches, using contacts and media organizations and so on. And then Roosevelt could graciously respond. He said, ah, well, seeing as public opinion has changed, um, I guess I'd better follow public opinion and um, do X, Y, or Z. And this is something he, he didn't want to be, and this changes at different points in his leadership, but at that moment in 1941, he didn't want to be the one who was telling America exactly what to think. He wanted America to change its mind along the lines he wanted and then to say, well, seeing as you've changed your mind, I'll do what you want. Finally, on the 7th of December 1941, the Japanese launch a surprise attack against Pearl Harbor. And um, in your book, you quote the popular American journalist Dorothy Thompson, who, to paraphrase us, uh, stated that the Pearl Harbor attacks came about after a sort of breakdown of peace negotiations with the Japanese. And there is a question about sort of how much Roosevelt, you know, if his efforts with the peace process could have prevented um, the, you know, the war with Japan. He couldn't necessarily have prevented the attack on Pearl Harbor, but the war with Japan itself. So can you talk to us a little bit about sort of Pearl Harbor in that context and sort of what led to those attacks? Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe it's worth sort of jumping in with the, the question, which um, I did a, a, a tour of the US and Canada to talk about our man in New York. And uh, the question I was asked, a lot um, was uh, was there a conspiracy? Was there? Um, did Roosevelt know about the Pearl attack? Sorry, Pearl Harbor attack before it took place. And um, and the short answer is no. 
He didn't know the location or the date of the attack. He knew that there was going to be some form of attack and there was a two-week window in which he imagined it would take place. But exactly as Dorothy Thompson said, there was more he could have done to prevent it getting to the stage where the Japanese were thinking about where and when to attack. And we know that he was aware of the, the debate within Tokyo between different factions within the Japanese government, essentially pro-war and anti-war. He knew that the delegation in America, the Japanese delegation in America, if they didn't achieve some kind of result, if they weren't able to come back to Tokyo and say, we have these concessions, Roosevelt has, has allowed us to do X, Y, or Z, then, if, then the, the pro-war faction would have its way and there would be war. But what he also knew, based on intelligence, which actually had come from Stevenson, was that if Japan attacked America, then Hitler was bound to come in straight away. And what's interesting is that the moment he found that out, his stance subtly changes. He becomes more receptive to the idea of allowing a Japanese attack to happen and not going out of his way to do everything possible to prevent that. Because his ultimate aim by late 1941 is to be at war with Nazi Germany. And that's, that's something which became really clear when researching this book. And what was amazing in, in some more microscopic details, just going through the kind of the account of the days between Pearl Harbor and Hitler's declaration of war four days later. And I think for Roosevelt, those were four very, very long days because he imagined it would happen straight away. He imagined that within the same day, Hitler would declare war, but he doesn't. And the attack takes place on a Sunday. On Monday, there's nothing from Berlin. On Tuesday, nothing. Wednesday, still no word from Berlin. And he's worried. Churchill's worried. A lot of the people he's been working with are also worried that America will simply get caught up in a war with Japan. Germany will just leave them to it, concentrate on the Soviet Union. And that will be that. America will not come into the war against Nazi Germany. And Hitler then makes this surprising decision. It's one that's been described as one of the great mistakes of the Second World War, because he has no obligation to declare war on America. And yet, on Thursday, the 11th of December, 1941, he goes against the advice of almost all of his senior advisors and uh, declares war on Roosevelt. And uh, I mean, I, I talk in the book about possible reasons why this could have been. And one part of his psychology, Hitler's psychology, is that he did not like to have war declared on him. He had to be the one who would take others by surprise and throughout, I mean, it's part of the Nazi war DNA, if you like, that Germany would attack first and without warning. And the idea of America surprising him and declaring war on him when he wasn't expecting it was, um, was unthinkable. And I think as he began to see some of the things Roosevelt was doing, and I would definitely point to this fake map, the map produced by MI6, the map which Roosevelt uses as, as so-called evidence of German plans to invade the Americas. That's one of the things that really affected Hitler. The first speech he gave after Roosevelt's was one in which he could talk of almost nothing but this South American map. He was furious. He was livid. He, he couldn't believe that Roosevelt had done something like this. But it also changes his perception of Roosevelt as a political adversary. And up until then, he's seen the American president as, uh, as someone who's essentially bound by, by democracy, by propriety, by the need to do things by the book. And suddenly, there is someone on the other side of the Atlantic producing, as far as you can tell, fake documents, fake maps to try and incite American public opinion to, uh, to go to war against Germany. And this, I would argue, unnerves him, changes his perception of Roosevelt and forces him to declare war sooner than he might have done otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. What was the reaction of the anti-war movement after sort of Pearl Harbor? Interesting question. They, uh, so I think kind of the immediate reaction, the first few hours, was uh, just deep, deep suspicion. There's a sense from, I think Lindbergh says, you know, this, this feels like a, an inside job, or um, one of the other ones said it's probably no more than just a couple of planes, not a full-blown raid. It's been exaggerated, in other words. But then I suppose, to their credit, in the day that follows, certainly the, the days after this, a lot of isolationists 
immediately change their stance. They um, they abandon the campaign that they've been they've been at for so long, and they realize that now America is it's it's in it. It's a war with Japan, and uh, it's time to uh, to take a different approach. What steps were Donovan and Stevenson taking sort of after Pearl Harbor just to continue up their efforts for the war against Germany? They, I mean, their relationship changes quite a lot after Pearl Harbor, and not necessarily for the better. So until Pearl Harbor, there were a lot of Americans, um, sort of similar friends of Donovan's, these people like the Century Group. They were aware of what Stevenson was up to. And generally, they turned a blind eye because Stevenson was campaigning behind the scenes to, to achieve the same thing they wanted. But the moment America comes into the war, that changes. They want control. They don't want the British tinkering and trying to change public opinion. So the relationship becomes a bit frostier. Um, at the same time, a lot of uh, British personnel working for Stevenson are simply transferred straight over to Donovan's organization. So there's still a close relationship between Donovan and Stevenson, but it's different. It's, um, it has changed, changed shape. And they remain friends throughout the rest of their lives, but around them, there is a, a new kind of suspicion and hostility, you could say. A wariness is a better way of putting it. Um, at the same time, there is um, an extraordinary degree of intelligence sharing between America and Britain by that stage. And a lot of that, again, its root is, is to be found in the relationship between Bill Stevenson and Bill Donovan, the two Bills, as they were known. Yes. Yeah. I mean, is this the origins of the, the quote unquote special relationship? Well, <laughs> I, I, I'd say it was. Some people would point to, uh, to the First World War. But the problem with that is that. The relationship becomes so frosty during the 1930s. It effectively it needs to be rebooted. It starts again, and uh, if you want a continuous special relationship that you can trace from the present back to its its origins, um, I think you have to start with Stevenson. So after Hitler has declared war against uh, America, what happened to Stevenson? Because he has this sort of trip back to London, um, and. Uh, this, this is quite a sort of significant trip for him, um, in, at least in the way that you sort of interpreted it. It's really interesting. No, it is. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's mission accomplished. He's, he's achieved. I mean, I say he's achieved. He didn't single-handedly bring America into the war against Nazi Germany, but he played a part. He played a part in, um, in helping to bring this about. And, uh, and you, could, you could argue that in a perfect world, and maybe in hindsight, he should have left it. He should have said, I've done what I set out to do. I want to go and do something else now. Um, but instead, he goes back to New York. I mean, he's required to go back. He's still the head of MI6, wants to go back. And in the years that follow, it becomes, his story becomes much more about bureaucracy, about clinging onto power, about trying to maintain good relations with the Americans and not always succeeding. And by the end of the war, by 1945, um, he, he has a lot of enemies. Um, within the world of uh, of intelligence, a lot of people who uh, who feel he's outside is welcome, and uh, he's he's he is an outsider. He's a businessman. He's not a career spy or spy master. And uh, so after the war, he then goes back to uh, back to business, and actually goes into business with a lot of the contacts he's made as a result of his intelligence work. Uh, there's this sort of almost. James Bond-like organization called the World Commerce Organization, which is uh, made up entirely of these big names in, in American and British uh, espionage. And what they were doing, which you could argue is unethical, was uh, exploiting the fact that Germany had collapsed and that suddenly German business interests had withdrawn their, their interests in certain parts of, of the world. They were taking up mines that had been run by German companies previously. They were just hoovering up assets which previously had been Nazi-owned and, uh, and making a lot of money out of it. So what happened to Stevenson's sort of, um, what about his sort of legacy after the war? Because it's quite an interesting thing. Because we mentioned this book earlier, um, A Man Named Intrepid and this sort of film. And there was even another book, I think it's The Real Intrepid. And there's another one, is it, um, is it Room 3606? Yeah, is that the right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 No, 3603. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Details matter. So, yeah. <laughs> a, uh, but yeah, it's it's. I mean, to be honest, it's a sad story. I think he. Um, I mean, he's he's achieved a huge amount during the Second World War. 
but of course, he's, he's sworn to secrecy and, um, and he doesn't talk about it until he hears other people talking about similar things. He begins to feel left out. He begins to worry, I think, that the entire record of what he's done will just be lost. And then we think he had a stroke. And, uh, and soon after this, he begins to, secrets begin to pour out of him. And, um, and he uh, commissions a biography of himself and he begins to get things wrong. He then later on is, is approached by the, the guy who writes A Man Called Intrepid. And by this point, Stevenson is, is really, he's old, he's had another stroke. He's also, in terms of how he remembers things, he apparently, according to people close to him, had developed this habit of, um, of just inserting himself into other people's stories, which is dangerous from a historical point of view. And the person who wrote A Man Called Intrepid would take everything that Stevenson said um, verbatim and, and, and not really challenge it and just reproduce it and then embellished it as well. So having kept his vow to secrecy to begin with, he slowly, this slowly unravels until a man called Intrepid comes out. And then a lot of the people who worked with him really resent the fact that he's taken part in this biography and, and the idea that he's, yeah, he's broken ranks and, uh, and, and not so much just shared all these secrets, but also um, changed them and uh, appeared to just sort of make up elements of his past. So it's, um, yeah, it, and it's sad, I suppose, from a historical point of view, because just the truth of what he did is so extraordinary um, that it's, uh, it's a shame to see it sort of tarnished by uh, the way it was told in the 1970s. Yeah. One question I did have, because um, he, his, now, his preferred drink was, a, um, was shaken, not stirred. Was it a martini? And was Fleming, did Fleming put that in there as a purposeful nod to Stevenson? He did. He did. Well, yeah, Ian Fleming came out to, uh, to work under Stevenson in the summer of 1941. And, uh, and Fleming was really taken by him. He really just began to note down details of everything Stevenson did. Um, including the way he liked to have his martinis and uh, shaken, not stirred, was was part of Stevenson's recipe, which uh, which yeah, I think appears in the James Bond films. <laughs> well, yeah, how many men around the world drink their martini shaken, not stirred because of that? <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's quite a legacy, yeah. If nothing else, um, to, <laughs> to have given that to the world is quite something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic one um one other bit in your book you sort of finished a book reflecting on the similarities between stevenson's influence campaign and what should we say the similarities and differences of stevenson's campaign and the russian influence campaign in 2016 can you talk to us a little bit about that yeah i mean this is this is one of the other reasons why i wanted to write this book at this point it was beginning to to hear about the allegations of a Russian influence campaign in 2016 and the years leading up to it in America leading up to the presidential election. And the similarities between the British influence campaign and the alleged Russian one, I have to keep saying alleged because some people argue it never happened, in spite of detailed intelligence reports um, that have emerged in America. The similarities are really interesting. There are in terms of what uh, the political theorist Thomas Ridd has called uh, hack, leak, amplify as a way of, of spreading fake stories or, or fake news, as it was called in the 1940s, as it is called today, that's almost exactly the same when it's used by the British as when it was used by the Russians in 2016. There are other similarities about trying to, uh, to use the press to um, oust a particular personality or, or character who appears to be in your way. And at the same time, there are differences. There are differences in terms of how far each operation was prepared to go, also how many people they had on the ground. So the British capital was certainly larger. But the reason I find this comparison interesting is that you begin to understand that there are fundamentals. There are fundamentals when it comes to changing the way a lot of people think in a country which is not your own. And it's not totally different whether it's been done in the 1940s or in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the things you also mentioned as well was how, um, in a way, 
the Stevens operation was almost a kind of a masterclass of collaboration between uh, sort of the British and American sort of services. I found that quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, I very much was. It was uh, he couldn't have done it on his own. He understood that there were a lot of Americans who were completely sympathetic to what he was doing, powerful Americans who wanted to help him. And I, I suppose it's easy when you think about a story like this. We, um, I mean, this is something about how he tells stories. It's something you know from your work, that it's, it's easy to focus on just a hero, a protagonist, someone who achieves everything, has a very clear goal. The idea that one of the things they do incredibly well is work with others. It's, it's, I mean, committees are less exciting than, <laughs> than a superhero acting on their own. And, um, and I went into this imagining Stevenson was very much a kind of a rogue operator uh, in isolation not working with Americans, but the further I went, the more I understood about exactly how his operation functioned. It functioned with the, the, the tacit approval of many high-powered Americans. And I think it's, it's to his credit. And I think it's something that, that's worth recognizing in terms of getting an operation like this off the ground. It's about creating support and uh, maintaining it. Thank you so much for joining me today and sort of taking time on this. Where can listeners sort of find out more about you and your work? My website is a good place to be, uh, uh But otherwise, yeah, there's a, there's a short bio and the inside flap of the book. I know every author is always urging people to buy their book, but uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good way into it. Well, they should get this book. It's a fantastic book. And um, and there'll definitely be a, a link uh, in the episode so people can go and find it. But uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. I find, you know, because I've, I've been fascinated by BSC for years and William Stevenson since I read um, A Man Named Intrepid, which was given to me by a friend a very long time ago. And uh, and every time I go to the New York, I try and visit the Rockefeller Center just to remind myself of all these things that were going on in that building. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> yeah well look, thank you very much henry thank you so much for your time today absolute pleasure really good to talk thank you thanks for listening this is secrets and spies